You're listening to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Hosted by Rev Yearwood, Mustafa Santiago Ali, and me, Antonique Smith. Each week, we host important conversations with innovators, policymakers, cultural influencers, and movement leaders who are leading the way to a 100% clean energy and just world. percent the coolest show on climate change my name is rev yearwood i am one of your hosts and our other host is my dear brother go ahead my brother mustafa santiago ali and we are here today really i just want to state this is our first show we're so happy to be here on wpfw we are here to fight climate change we are here to energize you to fight climate change we are here because this is a very very serious issue this show, this first show, is called The Inconvenient Truth, Environmental Justice in the 21st Century. And we have an amazing show. Mustafa, let them know who we have coming up right now. Uh, we have uh, Congressman Donald McEachin uh, representing Virginia, uh, coming out of, of Richmond, Virginia, who's going to share some experiences, share some words with us, and also some directions that are happening on Capitol Hill to help us to have a better understanding of how to get engaged in that process, but also to make sure that we are molding that process so that it is representing our communities and making sure that they are protected. And so as you are listening to this show, uh, please use go on Twitter and use the hashtag, hashtag think 100, hashtag think 100, and we can be in this very important dialogue. But let's get right to it. Congressman, are, are you there? I'm here, Reverend. I'm here. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be on your on your new program. Well, my brother, it's so good to hear you. It is exciting to hear you, um, and I know you're on Capitol Hill fighting the good fight, but uh, we want to jump right into this. Uh, so my first question um, leading into this really is, from your perspective, this is a new show we're talking to all over the region, people listening from all over the country. Um, so what is environmental justice to you? Environmental justice to me is everything dealing with the environment. We need to be in right relationship with our environment. Uh, as you already mentioned, we've got climate change. In my state, that manifests itself in terms of rising seas, which are threatening our businesses, threatening our livelihoods. It is manifesting itself in higher asthma rates in the inner cities. Um, but beyond just the bad things that we're talking about, environmental justice can mean some good things, too. It can mean good-paying jobs. We need to be building solar panels right here in the United States. We need to be building wind turbines right here in the United States. There's a whole green economy that's ready to explode, and all these things can be very positive. All of these things I would suggest to you ought to be talked about when we talk about environmental justice. Congressman McEachin, this is Mustafa. So a quick question that, you know, we often ask many, many folks who we come in contact with is, is why do you work on environmental justice? Well, Mustafa, it's so good to be with you as well. And, you know, I will admit that uh, there was a time when I was agnostic about the environment, but then uh, two things happened simultaneously, one in the natural and one in the spirit. Uh, I went to seminary. I went to seminary at Virginia Union University. Uh, and as you all know, that is a 
hotbed, hotbed of liberation theology. And while I was there, I was touched by the professors who talked about uh, creation care. At the same time, I'm going back into elective office, and I have supporters who are all up in my ear talking about their concerns about the environment. And so all of a sudden, I'm here having it uh, delivered to me spiritually. I'm having it delivered to me in the natural, and it's turning me into uh, someone who cares deeply, deeply, deeply about the environment. And so uh, I'm trying to make up for lost time, my brother. Well, we appreciate that. Can can you talk a little bit about, because I know that there have, in many instances, you know, folks have been sort of in a, in a period where, you know, they've been sort of dissuaded. Uh, folks have sort of given up sometimes on, on issues around climate uh, and the environment. And sometimes they don't know about all the great work that's happening in lots of different places and spaces. Can you talk a little bit about why you guys created the Climate Justice and Environmental Justice Task Force and sort of where you see that going. Uh, and then I think something that would be very, very important, especially to communities who are on the front lines, is, you know, um, how are they playing a role uh, in sort of framing out the future? Sure. So the reason why uh, Nanette Bettergon of California and uh, Pramila Jayapal of Washington State and I came together to form the task force is, because we wanted to make sure that voices of color were heard in the environmental discussion. Uh, as, as you know, uh, so oftentimes uh, the discussion can be tilted towards more majority concerns, for instance, concerns about view sheds, concerns about where different pipelines and different uh, transmission lines are going. And those are important issues. But we also need to make sure that the issues of those people who are impacted by the environment that are people of color who are oftentimes um, more drastically impacted by, uh, by environmental concerns are heard. And so we wanted to make sure that those voices were heard. And uh, we're very excited about the direction the task force is going. It's being well received here on Capitol Hill. It's being well received in the Democratic caucus. And so uh, we're just happy to add our voices to the chorus. As far as the second part of your question is concerned, we very much want to be, empower localities to come up with their own solutions. We know that we can't make one environmental suit to fit all localities, but there are some basic principles that we, we want to put forward. Everybody deserves clean air. Everybody deserves clean water. Everybody deserves to live in a healthy environment. And how we apply those, those sort of bedrock principles to various communities, we want community input from. And hopefully as we go about doing that, uh, will energize communities, and they'll be more involved in the movement. Congressman, Congressman uh, McEachin, who McEachin, represents uh, Virginia's 4th District, um, thank you again for being on the show. Let me just say this, that for those who are just tuning in, you have tuned in to the Hip Hop Caucus uh, show, Think 100% show on climate change. We are the coolest show on on climate change. It is an it, and we are having an, an amazing discussion. But I want to actually the reason why I was hesitant, Mustafa and Congressman, I I, I got to kind of deal with it. There, there really is no elephant in the room, Betsy. I, there really isn't that. We had some amazing other folks in the room, but I, I got to deal with this though. This is the Hip Hop Caucus Think One Hundred Percent Climate Change Show. But we're starting off a show with all people of color and many folks listening may not think that people of color are environmentalists so congressman tell me why this issue is important not for just for one sector but why 
particularly it is important for communities of color. Because we're the ones who are most drastically affected by uh, bad environmental policies. Uh, I have yet to find a community that's next to a landfill that's causing bad water, uh, bad air, bad environments that's not next to a community of color. They just seem to run hand in hand. Whenever I get a complaint about a bad landfill, it's coming from a community of color. Uh, our asthma rates are higher because we're living in the inner cities and because it's hard for heat to escape hmm. uh, basically asphalt jungles and therefore our asthma rates are higher. And you are so right, Rev. When, you know, when I first became involved with the environmental movement in Virginia, uh, there was an absence of African-Americans in the movement. And folks were asking, where are they? I was usually the only one in the room. I can't tell you how happy I was when I got to D.C. and found you and Mustafa <laughs> and the Hip Hop Caucus and other folks who look like me who are, who are concerned about the environment. It is, it's a it's been the wind, wind underneath my wings, and it's given me a, a new level of energy. So thank you for all that you all do. Congressman McKeachin, this is Mustafa. So, you know, taking it back home, um, folks in the Tidewater area, you know, whether we're talking about Hampton right. or, or, yeah. or a number of the, you know, the communities who are, who are right there, Norfolk, so, so many others, we know that as climate change uh, continues to move forward and the sea levels begin to rise, in many, many instances it is our communities uh, who are going to be impacted uh, from that. Um, are there any things that are currently going on or any plans uh, on Capitol Hill to be able to address uh, these most pressing issues uh, on our communities? Well, you know, one of the things we have to do is to get back into the Paris Accords because we have got to get our greenhouse emissions under control. When I was in the Virginia General Assembly, uh, I put forward a, a, a bill to try to uh, uh, get us to be part of the uh, part of Reggie. Similar bills were put forward this year, and I'm not sure if they passed or not, but those are the types of things that we need to do to be able to get our greenhouse gases under control. And, you know, the thing that folks don't think about sometimes is that the environment hits so many different levels. You know, we've talked about how it affects our communities, but as those seas rise and they do affect our communities, they're not just affecting where we live, they're affecting where we work. That's right. And in, and in Virginia, we're talking about our naval installations. Our shipbuilding. You know, I've got 91,000 jobs down there in the Hampton Roads area that are dependent on military spending and tourism. And so when you have sea level rise coming up and, and threatening that, that's a threat to those jobs. And not only that, when you have a president of the United States who wants to go back to the notion of offshore drilling, uh, offshore drilling off of the Virginia coast, that threatens those 91,000 jobs. Because the Navy's already said that there are very few places that they can, given the assets that we have in Virginia, which are unique ass, naval assets, there are very few places where you could actually drill that wouldn't impede their training and their efforts to defend our nation. And so if you were to go and to sort of uh, try to do replicate what happens in the Gulf of Mexico, and I might say the western part of the Gulf of Mexico, not the eastern part, um, that would just be devastating to Virginia and Virginia's economy. And I would suggest to you that there are states all up and down the East Coast and the West Coast that are similarly situated. And let me just, for folks who are listening to you and they hear things like the Paris Accord and being still in, explain that for our audience today. Like, What does that mean to be still in the Paris Accord? Well, you know, let's go back to President Obama. He negotiated the Paris Accords, which, was, which is an attempt to keep the global temperatures down. We don't want our temperature in, on the planet to rise more than two or three more degrees before we have really catastrophic effects from a global warming. He negotiated that agreement. 
Uh, it was a good start. Got almost every nation on the planet involved except for two. And then here comes President Trump, who wants to withdraw us from those climate accords, withdraw the United States, allow the United States to break its word, come out of those accords, and basically say, you know what? We're not really concerned about greenhouse gas emissions. We're going to use all the fossil fuels we can use. We're going to kowtow to big business. We're going to kowtow to the oil industry um, and and uh, and not worry about temperature rising. Um, that's what it means to withdraw it. But we have an opportunity to get back in uh, because you can't really get out of it until 2021. And by 2021, I'm praying that we have a new president of the United States who understands that we need to be in those climate accords and that we need to be uh, concerned with the number one issue of the 21st century, which is the environment. Make no mistake about it. This is the issue that we have got to get right because we're talking about not only our children's futures, but our children's children's futures. So, Congressman McKeachin, a question that I think is really important for us to, to think through. Can we win on climate? Can we win on these environmental issues that we're talking about mm. if folks of color are, are not, not just at the table, but also in the decision-making, um, who are also helping to frame out the solutions based on their Mustafa, experiences? Explain, explain that, though. What do you mean when you say decision-making mm. in this? you got to break that down. Yeah, so what we mean when we say in the decision-making is that sometimes people will begin to move forward on the development of policy without ever ground-truthing it, without ever making sure that those folks who have been living with the impacts in their communities have an opportunity to frame out that direction moving forward, to mm. make sure that when we're talking about addressing these impacts that are happening, that they have, a, you know, that they are helping to make people make sure people are understanding what's happening in that space, but also flipping that coin over, that when there are benefits that can also come from moving forward on climate in, in a positive way, that they are also having the opportunity to take advantage of renewable energy, taking advantage of those job opportunities that exist. So sometimes, Congressman, I feel like there is a disconnect with uh, folks who are well-meaning uh, in this space, and they make the assumptions that we can win on these issues without making sure that everyone has an opportunity to fully participate in the process. Well, you've hit the nail right on the head, uh, Mustafa, and you're absolutely right. Uh, we've got to have local buy-in. We've got to have people of color and all the affected communities buying into uh, whatever the policy is that we're going to frame out as we go forward. Um, that's, we spoke earlier in the show that um, oftentimes we try to create one environmental suit to suit all, suit all communities. That just won't work. Uh, we have certain bedrock principles, clean air, clean water, healthy environment. Those are our bedrock principles, but how they shape out in different communities, uh, that's part of the broader discussion that needs to be had. And you're right, one community can't just run off without consulting with everybody so that this is a, a project that we've all bought into and that we can stand shoulder to shoulder and march forward on. Well, Congressman, let me let me ask this question, because maybe, I just, maybe I, you're up there on Capitol Hill, and I know you're working hard why is this a partisan issue? Why is something like clean water or clean air or our children not getting asthma or our mamas not getting cancer? How in the world is this a partisan issue? Why, what is it, how do we have folks who are at EPA, who are rolling things back, who are at Interior, at all these agencies, how is this happening at this critical juncture? Why can't we, why can't Capitol Hill come together and say, listen, 
We have Americans who are dying because of pollution. We have a threat because of climate change. We just saw Hurricane Harvey. We saw Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Maria. Why can't we get it together? It's, it's because of uh, the Republican Party and more particularly the Trump administration. You know, the Trump administration has decided that they want to take these four years, if we allow them to have all four years, they want to take these four years and say, and, and line the pockets of their cronies and make sure that everybody that is already wealthy becomes wealthier. And that includes the, the oil industry. And that includes Donald Trump's friends and Exxon and, and BP and, and, and you name the oil company. Uh, he's trying to make them wealthier uh, than they already are. And then and at the same time, he wants to spread the, the quite frankly, the myth that he can bring back certain jobs. As for instance, in the coal industries, those jobs are gone for one reason, one reason only, technology. Uh, the world has moved on. Those were good-paying jobs. They were the best jobs you, that we could have in, in the early part of the uh, 20th century. But we've learned to do better. And, you know, the new jobs of the future are solar and wind, and we need to be training folks to do that. But he would rather scare people because President Obama came in, and we know how President Obama looked. He looked like you and me. So he'd rather scare people and say, look, these folks are stealing your jobs. They're uh, hurting your economy. And all this stuff about climate change is just made up by the Chinese. And he sold that bill of goods to enough people to become president of the United States. So that's why he's, that we can't get these things done, because the Republican Party is too interested in holding on to power rather than helping our constituents. And, you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost on that. Well, I got to tell you, man, you know, personally for me, this is not about Republican this is not about Democrat. This is about humanity. And it just it breaks my heart when I look at just the science and we see what, what what's happening here. But um, let, let me ask you this question. You mentioned I want to get back to Norfolk and the Tidewater area. We mentioned that um, because, you know, I'm I'm originally from the gray state of Louisiana. And, uh, you know, we went through we, we have flooding and we've gone through um, Katrina. And many people have said that Norfolk. Um, could be the next New Orleans, and that scares me. And they say particularly because of how with poverty, how people who are renters and they're leading, what is being done on the federal level to ensure that particularly uh, poor people and poor people of color are not left behind when these kind of storms or hurricanes come through their region? Well, to, to be honest with you, Rev, we've got to win some elections for something to be happening on the federal level. Uh, there is nothing good happening on the federal level to protect uh, those types of folks who are in harm's way. I mean, look at what has happened in the Virgin Islands. Look at what has happened in Puerto Rico. Um, look at the poor responses that have happened in both of those areas. And so right now we're faced with an administration that uh, does not care deeply about poor folks. And the only way that we can fix that is to win some elections. And that's why it's so important that your listeners out there understand that November's coming and uh, they've got enough, they're going to have some choices to make and hopefully they'll choose correctly so that we can start the process of getting back to looking out for the least of these. 
So, Congressman McEachin, this is uh, this is Mustafa. And, you know, we have the Respect My Vote campaign at the Hip Hop Caucus. And, you know, we've been blessed to register over 600,000 folks to participate in the civic process. So are you saying that your vote has power and can actually make real change happen? Absolutely, your vote has power. I mean, look at what happened in Virginia, uh, in our Virginia legislature. We went from uh, over uh, 17 seats down to one seat down in the Virginia legislature, and that has brought us within uh, a special session away from having Medicare expand, Medicaid expansion in Virginia. Um, and that one vote, that one seat that we lost, we lost on a tie. I mean, think about that. They actually, the, the, the two parties, Democrat and Republicans, tied in one district, and it was decided not by a coin flip, not by another election, but by drawing names out of a hat. That's how come we're not in charge of the Virginia House of Delegates right now. So yes, your vote matters. And look what happened in Alabama, uh, where we hadn't elected a Democratic senator, I think, since uh, 1961, if my memory serves. Not only did it snow a few days before the election in Alabama, we elected a Democratic senator in Alabama. So, yes, your vote matters. Um, uh, and uh, no one should ever think that, it, that their vote is uh, inconsequential, because when we come out and when we vote the way we're supposed to, good things can happen. Without a doubt. Rev? Yeah, no, I just want to make sure people know what they're tuning into. They're tuning in here to the Hip Hop Caucus. Think 100%. The coolest show on climate change. I want to make sure. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. The coolest show? The, the coolest show on climate change. And so I want to actually deal with that because with our title. I'm going to take the first part, and then I'm going to take the second part, and then, Congressman, I want you to, to chime in here. So for folks... Hip Hop Caucus, you know, is an amazing organization, but it's also like a little bit of, you know, hip hop, we got a little play on that. So the word hip means to inform, so that, you know, we hip somebody. The word hop means to cause folks to move to action. And then caucus means to do it together. So we got that part. We got the part to hip somebody, to get somebody to move to action and to do it together. But the question, though, with this amazing show, where does the think 100%? So what does 100% mean to us, Mustafa? Sure, we came in at 100 on every level. We're talking about, when we talk about job creation, making sure that we keep it at 100 and making sure that all the communities have the opportunity to fully engage in that process and to and get the benefits out of that. When we're talking about 100%, yes, we are talking about moving to 100% uh, fossil fuel free. Uh, of course, that's it. But we also talking about keeping it 100 when we talk about the various types of organizations that are out there who are working on these issues and making sure that we're having real talk and real conversations about making sure that diversity, making sure that the voices of communities are driving that process, making sure that people's boards look like America, making sure that foundations and other philanthropic family who is out there, making sure that when they are framing out priorities, that communities are helping to drive that process. So we are talking about keeping it 100, and we are also talking about culture and how culture has the ability to build bridges, it has the ability to educate, it has the ability to move minds, uh, and how that when we keep it 100 and make sure that that is the driver uh, in this process that we have, that we'll come out on the other end in a place that folks feel good about what's happening. Congressman, I want to ask you this question. So it's a two-parter here. Uh, the two parts is the first part is that, you know, how do we actually make that transition in your perspective? How do we actually go from being 
from uh, fossil fuels to clean energy? How do we go to being 100% renewable energy? That's one. And then the second part to this is kind of a personal part. I know your background. I know you're a person of faith. I know, um, you know, I don't, I don't hold on. I mean, you went to Virginia Union, you know, Howard University Divinity Schools. Actually, you know, I'm not, we, we, won't, we won't have that argument here now. And, but, but I actually want you to give because when we discuss these topics about climate change, about pollution, about these things that are hurting our children, people lose hope. And they see an administration that sometimes is not doing the things that needs to be done. So the second part is, man, how do we keep hope? alive during this moment when we know we need to be doing what needs to be done right? Well, the, the answer to both questions really is in doing what you're doing right now because while I was getting my meager education at Virginia Union University instead of the <laughs> grandiose Howard School of Divinity, we used to complain that uh, we didn't have enough of these shows. You know, it's interesting how the religious right has all the shows, all the TV shows, all the radio shows. And one of the things that we said back then was we need to have our own shows talking about issues that are important to us and educating our community. And that's what's so blessed about what you all are doing right now. You all are doing that. This is how we keep hope alive. And as far as how we make the transition, we make the transition by educating people. We make the transition by making sure they know that we have to starve ourselves off of fossil fuels and be willing to uh, make sure that society's prepared to pay the cost because this, this isn't going to come free. This is going to come with tax incentives. This is going to come with tax breaks and things of that nature. So those are the sorts of things that we're going to have to do. Uh, but we can get this done. We can get this done in, in, a, in a real way if, if, if we're just diligent, if we stick to it, and if we keep our eye on the prize. Well, Congressman, we really appreciate you being with us. One, I want to give a, a shout-out to the Southeast Care Coalition who's holding it down in Virginia because we want to make sure that we are representing for those communities that are out there on the front lines doing the work. And as we close out in the last 30 seconds as we transition, just one question for you. If there's one song um, that actually touches you, that makes you want to move, makes you want to do something, what is that one song that would move you? Hallelujah, Anyhow. All right. Man. All right. Well, hallelujah. Hallelujah, then. anyhow. Hallelujah, well, anyhow. Enjoy being with you. Bring me back now. Well, no, no. We, you, you, listen, you, you have an open invitation, and thank you. Um, thank you so much. That was Congressman McEachin. And so, as many of you are joining, you are listening to the Hip Hop Caucus Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. I want to thank uh, WPFW for hosting this amazing show. You know, I'm a huge fan of this station and the people who work here. I want to thank the supporters of this program, the League of Conservation Voters and the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, if you are listening, please, please, please submit your comments and questions using hashtag Think100 on Twitter. You can find out more about this show and upcoming shows at think100.info. You can follow us at Hip, at Hip Hop Caucus. I'm at Rev Yearwood. Mustafa Ali is at EJ in action because he's EJ in action. And so, uh, man, thank you all so much. And I'm going to give a big shout-out to uh, Senator uh, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse right now who's on the floor. This is real. I mean, this is a show 
but this is really a, a moment. This is not a game. Um, and so I want us to really understand that while we are here having this conversation, while we are discussing what's happening, um, folks are all over. And we'll get into that each week. Each week we'll kind of have that conversation. There are so many amazing people all over this country who are doing so many things to fight for this planet and fight for, you know, just for things like clean air and clean water. I mean, so we're going to be bringing those things to you. So please make this every every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Make sure that you are tuning in um, to this, this time that we're having here and be a part of the Hip Hop Caucus. Think 100% the coolest show on climate. But we have some all-stars. I mean, we got some all-stars in the room. I mean, I'm not, I mean, this, we got some, I mean, you know what I'm saying, heavy, you know what I'm saying, yeah. heavy, heavyweights are in the room. So, Mustafa, introduce our guests coming up now. Yeah, we got an all-star team here today. So, I, I'm super blessed uh, that we have Dr. Robert Bullard, often described as the father, let me say it again for y'all, the father of the environmental justice movement. He is the distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy in the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University. And I know we got some Texas Southern University listeners who are out there. Uh, Dr. Bullard also has authored over 18 books, and I have about 10 of those that address <laughs> climate justice, environmental racism, sustainable development, and other topics. He has also been the recipient of numerous awards and honors, including from CNN, the American Bar Association, the National Wildlife Federation, the Sierra Club, and many, many others. And we definitely want y'all to follow him on Twitter at Dr. Bob Bullard. Let me say it again on Twitter at Dr. Bob Bullard. And we are also blessed that we have Dr. Adrian Hollis. Dr. Adrian Hollis is the director of the federal policy at WEAC for Environmental Justice representing Harlem, and she is also an experienced environmental toxicologist as well as an environmental attorney, so that means you got, you got a lot of degrees over there. <laughs> What's really going on? Uh, she has also worked with a number of community organizations, has a wealth of experience in community-based participatory research, CBR for those of you who know that term, uh, around environmental justice issues for decades now. I don't know how you do it looking so young over there, but you can follow her on Twitter at EJ Toxic Doc. That is Twitter at EJ Toxic Doc. So, Rev, let's get it going. No, thank you both for being a part of this kickoff. It's very important. I think we want to have a conversation around environmental justice, and we couldn't think of better folks to be a part of this conversation. Dr. Bullard, you know, you are, without a doubt, considered the father of environmental justice. You are not only my brother, you know, I, I have, when many of us who have, have come up um, for me, literally, um, you know, Dr. Wright um, and others who literally raised me back in, in Louisiana. And I know you've been fighting this fight. Um, give us, uh, a Congressman before gave us some background, but can you give us your analogy of this movement? And first, give us for those who are listening, because we have some new folks made to the movement, what is environmental justice? But then give us some history of this movement. Well, first of all, uh, thanks for uh, having me on the show, and and thanks for having this show. This is very important, and it's, it's needed, uh, particularly uh, in this uh, day and time. Well, uh, I I got involved um, working on environment and dealing with race and racism way back in 1978, and this was uh, a sort of an accident. I was two years out of graduate school in Houston at Texas Southern University, and I was asked to collect data for a lawsuit that had been filed by my wife who was suing this company. I won't call any name, but the initials of BFI. 
the second largest waste disposal company in the world. And I had 10 students in my research methods class at Texas Southern, and we uh, collected data for that lawsuit. And we discovered that uh, 100% all the CDO landfills in Houston were located in black neighborhoods, wow. six out of eight of the incinerators mm -hmm. in black neighborhoods. And three out of four of the privately owned landfills were located in black neighborhoods. And hmm. so uh, there was no um, – we designed a study, and we actually sh showed that what's happening in Houston, which doesn't have zoning, uh, didn't have zoning then. This, these decisions that were made by individuals, um, all white city council decided that black neighborhoods were the best place to put garbage. Hmm. And I wanted to know, is this – What's happening in Houston? Is is it happening? This is 1978 now, <laughs> long time ago. Uh, and, and is this happening in just Houston? Uh, is it happening in other areas? And so I expanded the study and looked at what's happening in the southern United States. Uh, in Dallas, all the lead smelters in Dallas were in black neighborhoods. And I looked at Louisiana and where the, you know, along Cantor Alley and black communities have the worst of the worst. And then went all the way to West Virginia. And a lot of people don't know there are black people in West Virginia, and this company found them. And you probably found them uh, in the 50s. And these black folks have been there since the 1880s. So so that's how Dumping and Dixie, the book that I wrote in 1990, wow. came about. Uh, as I said, this was not something that I planned, but it was something that was uh, it was an accident that somehow I got drafted in doing this work. And over the years, you know, writing and researching and working with communities, getting calls from communities, saying we need help in trying to fight this particular facility. We need help in trying to um, uh, uh, get this particular uh, facility closed down or our school is, is next to this facility and, and creating problems for our children. And, and so it was a matter of, of trying to uh, work with communities and bring other um, researchers and academics and community leaders uh, on board to say that we have to assemble teams of people to do the policy work to do the research and do the analysis and and develop these um, relationships so that when people need assistance, you know, Bob Bullard working at a university, we don't lead. I don't lead anybody. I assist and support and I stand with them uh, when they need uh, the kinds of uh, research. And we try to use uh, community based participatory research so that when you do a research project or do you, you do an analysis, uh, you, you provide skills and training to those communities that are most impacted so that when you leave, they have those skills to uh, do for themselves. And when they need you, you can come uh, and support. That's how we build movements. That's how right. we build uh, uh, collaboration. That's how we uh, continue to uh, keep this movement uh, going uh, uh, for more than four, four decades. Yeah. Dr. Bullard. Um, could you talk a little bit about the first People of Color Summit and the principles of environmental justice? I, I think about those, especially when we have folks making some decisions uh, that, that impact our communities, and, and maybe they just haven't been educated yet. Yeah. Well, the, the principles of environmental justice and the first National People of Color uh, Summit was uh, organized and planned by uh, Dr. Benjamin Chavis, who was the executive director at the um, Commission for Racial Justice. And uh, he pulled together a, a planning committee, and we would come to New York every, you know, two weeks. And and uh, the United Church of Christ would, uh, a commission for racial justice would mm -hmm. would assist and support, and actually uh, plan this summit. We planned it for 500 people, and over a thousand people came from every state, wow. at least a dozen countries. And and we, the, it was a four-day conference, a summit. Uh, only people of color could be delegates, and but we the first two days was just people of color because we had to unpack 
the racism, the colonialism, the imperialism that, that we were burdened with. And the, the second two days, we open it up to everybody. We say we want to be an inclusive movement. And uh, under the leadership of Dr. Chavis and the uh, Commission for Racial Justice, we were able to uh, work through, you know, up 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and develop those principles. And the first principle is that people must speak for themselves. The most people who are most impacted uh, must be in the room and sit at the table. This was a principle of self-determination. And I think those, you know, the, the it was October 1991 that we had the summit. And there were like a dozen of us that went to Earth, uh, Rio Earth Summit in uh, June of 1992. And those principles got to Rio before we did. They had been translated into at least, you know, a, a half dozen languages. And so the, the idea of, of the environmental justice movement and the, the isolated struggles that had been occurring across the country, what galvanized the movement, and I failed to mention this, is that North Carolina uh, in Warren County and the demonstration and the marches uh, and, and pulling together the groups, uh, you know, with the Commission for Racial Justice and with the, the Congressional Black Caucus and the NAACP and other grassroots groups. I mean, coming together saying we will not be poisoned. We will not have mm. our communities turn into um, sacrifice zones. That's right. And this, this spirit, uh, that was 1982. This spirit still lives today uh, in terms of young people where this, you know, we were saying way back then, that our communities matter, you know, our health matters, and now we have Black Lives Matter. The whole idea of the movement for environmental justice and climate justice is, is intergenerational, and we have to uh, not uh, uh, not run away from these issues. And when it's when it's dealing with race, we have to call it environmental racism. But all injustice, you know, is not just dealing with racism. You know, poor people in in West Virginia that are poisoned and uh, mountaintop removal and, and kids are getting sick because of water quality, uh, bad water and bad air, that's an environmental injustice. And we will fight just as hard for those kinds of, of issues in those communities that we would, you know, communities uh, that are on the U.S.-Mexican border and, and communities, low-income communities and rural areas as well as in our cities. But Dr. Bullet and Dr. Hollis, please join. To, so I have a question. I have, I have a. I mean, I, this is this is a burning question too. This is this is. I, I maybe I I miss something in the history, because when I go out, sometimes I will see folks in our movement, the environmental movement, and it looks like a siloed environmental movement. Sometimes if you go to folks working on mountaintop removal of are over here, and then folks are over here dealing with environmental justice, and then folks over here dealing with car standards, and folks over here dealing with offshore drilling. Uh, I, I know that we can't win if we're a siloed movement. So tell me, and it looks like the EJ movement, is that just for black people and brown people? I mean, is, do, 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 do rural people deal with environmental justice? I mean, I just help me to understand how this, how one, EJ, this is sometimes pigeonholed as this for black and brown folk are the only ones who are polluted, and how can we win with a siloed movement? Well, let me just uh, correct any misgivings or misunderstanding uh, about what environmental justice is. What the environmental justice movement did uh, in the 80s, in, in the early, well, in, in our people of color summit in the early 90s, it redefined what environmentalism is and what the environment is. Mm -hmm. The environment is everything. It's where we live, work, play, learn, worship, as well as the physical and natural world. 
uh, if you take that definition, it doesn't leave a whole lot out. And so the environment is in this room. It's also out there. And the environmental movement and the conservation movement for many years had siloed you're just dealing with um, birds. You're just dealing with wetlands. You're dealing with wildlands. And so what we have done is, is to integrate across the various areas. Hmm. And so we, we deal with, you know, uh, kids in, in urban areas that, that have uh, to deal with lead poisoning. We deal with rural areas in, in Louisiana and in Alabama and, and that are inundated with all kinds of uh, pollution from, from uh, incinerators and toxic waste dumps. We deal with uh, Native American reservations. We deal with colonials along the U.S.-Mexican border. I mean, our issues, we also deal with the fact that many of our communities don't have grocery stores. There are food deserts don't have access to good, uh, clean, efficient, affordable public transportation. And so when you talk about dealing with all those issues from a justice standpoint, I've written 18 books, but it's just one book, but don't tell anybody. Housing, transportation, energy, food security, climate. I mean, it's all of them, disaster response. So when you talk about what happened in Marie and, and Katrina and Harvey in Houston, I had to evacuate hmm. in, in Harvey. And so when we talk about communities that are on the front line of environmental issues and environmental hazards, it's usually people of color, working class people, and poor people. These are the same communities that are impacted disproportionately by climate. And so we're talking about the same communities. So we have to say that climate change in terms of, of uh, climate justice is more than parts per million. It's more than greenhouse gases. It's also about human rights, and it's also about public health. When we define it that way, we bring a whole lot of folks to the table. That's right. And I'm going to just um, underline what you said, Dr. Bullard, because what I've seen in the last year or so is that you have a lot of different groups come together who, normal, who, are non -tra who traditionally don't work together. For example, I sit on the Endangered Species Coalition because the environment is everything and everybody and the, um, our, our wildlife, our animals. And, and when one group is impacted, we're all impacted. That's right. Perfect example, the canary in the coal mine, right? Mm -hmm. And how that served as a warning to the coal miners. So what I find, um, it, that interestingly enough, is that there are a number of different groups who come to, who call me, who come to me and say, how can we work with communities? So I think that where there was... Explain when they say that community, what communities are they talking about? What they're normally talking about are environmental justice communities or vulnerable communities, communities yeah. at the forefront who are affected the worst from, mm. in this instance, environmental, uh, excuse me, climate change, but in general, just environmental issues. And that includes, as you mentioned, so many different things. As um, um, Dr. Bullard so eloquently spoke, it is where we live, work, play, pray, right. go to school and everything. It's everything around us. It's safety in your neighborhood, being able to walk. Um, to school, um, being in school, you know, safety in school. So we try to reach out to non-traditional partners so that we can address this issue in a wholesome manner. Another reason, and this is, you know, we're talking about uh, real talk, mm -hmm. is that a lot of the money is going to other organizations. They aren't going to, it isn't going to communities of color. Right. Um, the money. To explain that. Explain, break that. I want folks to explain that. So when what you're saying is that then there's there's people are dealing with the issue. Yes. They we're trying to fix it and we're dealing with it. And in trying to fix it, then people begin to give resources, but it's not given out equally. Right. Um, I, and I, I'm not sure why. I know that in, in the past I'm from Alabama. 
from Mobile, so I'm definitely from uh, Deep South, and and a lot of the initially, you know, that's where a lot of the companies would move to or come to or begin their issues, uh, begin their work, because I don't, I don't know what they thought about the people in the South, whether we were slow or just, you know, weren't, you know, weren't able to understand what was going on. So um, for some people, the thought of funding, uh, giving money to communities of color, let's be honest, was something that they didn't, they weren't interested in. So uh, today you see a lot of funding groups giving money to what we call big greens like an NRDC or um, Earth Justice or, you know, um, big ag agencies like that. And you don't see much funding. There, there's, there was always little funding, but you see even less now when it's needed the most. Hmm. 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 So uh, go ahead, Dr. Bull. Yeah, I, I know why. Come and on I, now. And, and I know why. This is 100%. So let's, let's get there. Let, let us, I'm from Alabama, too. Uh, there's a reason why they call it Dixie Dixie. Uh, the, if you understand how the South is so unique, uh, it's, it, it has a unique legacy and a unique history. Dumping in Dixie was about racism. It's about how the South has a legacy and has resisted civil rights, right. equal protection, environmental protection. And pollution was seen as economic development, bringing on down. And generally that pollution would meant the path of least resistance. And that path in the South meant mostly black communities and poor communities. And there's a direct correlation between exploitation of land and exploitation of people. That's why the South, the Southern United States, is the most befouled uh, region of the United States, not by accident, but because of that historical legacy. So, Dr. Bullard, is that why we have places like Uniontown? Um, we're dealing with coal ash, and we have places, you know, like Tallahassee also that's dealing with those landfills and Princeville, North Carolina, which was founded by freed slaves and Africatown. Um, yeah. Is that why we have those places facing these challenges? Uh, the short answer, yes. 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 That's why we continue to have communities disrespected and communities being turned into toxic wastelands and how racism, environmental racism, is killing communities. Like in, in communities that were founded by former slaves, they, they survived uh, slavery, Jim Crow segregation, but it may not survive toxic racism. You talk about communities uh, like Africaville in, in Mobile. You talk about communities in um, Pensacola, Florida, that, you know, it's got a dozen uh, uh, landfills surrounding communities, and you talk about you know communities along the Mississippi River, where where when slaves were freed, they bought land from the master and set up set up shop. A lot of those communities don't exist anymore because the industries have polluted them, and they've had to relocate, or they basically people have to leave. Now that is that is real. That is not something that's made up. And and environmental racism kills. And it's not, it, it's not a sexy topic. This is something that we must address. And when we talk about climate, we have to bring in the fact that race, place, um, and location oftentimes creates vulnerabilities. And the, the, if you talk about uh, zip code is the most powerful predictor of health and well-being. Zip code is also a predict, can be a predictor of vulnerability, how safe you are. And so when we talk about climate change and we talk about uh, sea level rise and we talk about heat waves, we talk about lack of, of parks and green space, we talk about 
uh, uh, areas that are saturated with industrial facilities that's creating not just uh, emitting greenhouse gas, but also emitting other kinds of co-pollutant that's causing asthma all right now. We're not right. talking 20 years from now. We're talking right, right now. We have to deal with all of that in total. And we have to have organizations that are funded. And funded is one thing to talk about a lack of diversity within environmental organizations in terms of the green groups, et cetera. We also must talk about diversifying the money, you know, getting some of the money yes, and and diversifying that to the people of color organizations and, and environmental justice organizations and climate justice organizations so that we so that we create the capacity of these organizations to do for themselves in those communities that they're closest to. That has to happen. So, Dr. Buller, you're talking about institution building inside of our communities and with, with our own folks. Uh, uh, short answer, yes. <laughs> so, so let me, so let me, so let me, let me take this because a little further because I think that the bottom line, we all agree, is that we want to get the pollution. We don't want the pollution, and the pollution itself is causing the effects of climate change. And so, it's a win-win-win if we can transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. Now, we, we all can win on that. So, but let me say this, as for those, you, we mentioned about environmental justice and we're talking about communities of color. Um, one of the things that we are also trying to bridge the gap is in between the areas that hurt, you mentioned the environment. And so we're talking about the environment, meaning that the, the criminal justice system, the environment meaning the schools, the environment meaning clearly the environment and, and what that means for children and, and folks who are living there. Let me ask you this for both of you in, in this. Recently, as you know, uh, well, not recently, a couple of years ago, um, Eric Garner uh, was choked to death in New York, and the Black Lives Movement was outraged, and rightfully so, because it was an illegal chokehold. And But many folks have said that even if he had not been choked, that in his, in his borough, it received an F for air quality, and even furthermore, that he had asthma. And then we look further, and all of most of his children also had asthma. So, looking at Eric Garner, who was dealing with situation with police brutality, we now, for me, we we lost a dear one. His daughter just died. Erica Garner just died, who had an asthma attack. And we see this cycle where either folks are having, man, then with police brutality with Eric Garner or his daughter now who became a tremendous activist. She died because of, she had an asthma attack, which caused a heart attack, was put into a coma. This gets hard. So when people hear this, they're like, man, this is just too much. So then how can we, and how can we inspire not only are, are those who are around these organizations, but how can we inspire our community? to get more engaged, to know that don't give up hope, but continue to fight the good fight? Well, I think um, one of the things, that's a, a very good question, by the way. One of the things that we've done, we as in we act um, for environmental justice and um, is, is try to identify as many tools um, that are out there that communities can use. For example, we've developed um, a, um, a guidance document called Cleaner, um, Cleaner Air, Cleaner Communities. And what it, it's just six, a six-step process that lays out how state and local governments should, in, should include communities, should involve communities, up, you know, first and always, um, frequently, often, right, and in the beginning of any 
plan that they are engaging in that's going to in, um, going to directly impact the community, which is probably going to be most environmental plans, communities need to be able to say, look, this is how you engage us. Because they're stakeholders. They're not victims. They're not um, people you talk to after the fact. They are equal partners right. in any decision. I was just speaking with someone about this yesterday, and what we've come up with is is just not yet. So keep fighting because we're, we're, we're winning. We just haven't won. So we're not finished yet. That's right. So not yet. Just keep going. And so we, I think the stories themselves are encouraging. If, if I may, um, the story of Buckingham um, County residents is a, another um, Freedmen's community where um, the ancestors um, were slaves and the people have, the families have now bought the property. And then you have rural farmers whose ancestors were probably slave owners. And then you have another um, section of town, um, Yogaville. And all of these people have gotten together to address the issues around um, two pipelines, Atlantic Coast Pipeline and the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And you don't see that very often, or you haven't seen it in the past, when it's the fact that Everybody is enraged. The friends of Buckingham County, which are people who live in and around um, that part of Virginia, who have what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is what gives people um, the energy to fight is the fact that unfair behavior enrages people and mm -hmm. that you take that anger and you turn it towards creating just action. Right. Mm -hmm. Creating, focusing it on what tools can we use? How can we make sure that people hear us and that they don't forget that we're here? Because this is a conversation we had years ago, 20, 30 years ago. Why are we still having a conversation about involving environmental justice? Like, why are we still doing that? Sure. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bullock. Yeah, I, I think it's important that you understand that there are a lot of, of uh, initiatives that are going on that's below the radar of the big TV shows and the new, the big uh, national press. For example, uh, Dr. Beverly Wright in New Orleans and myself uh, in Houston at Texas Southern, we've organized for the last six years the historically black college and universities community-based organization climate change initiatives. It's a consortium of about 35 uh, black colleges. Most of them are located in the South. We're talking about training the next generation of leaders sure. and, and partnering with community-based organizations in those states where these uh, where these schools are located. And uh, in December, uh, two years ago, we took 50 uh, African-American students from 15 black colleges to Paris so that our students could see how these treaties are negotiated. And when they came back home, they're working with their local communities, they're working with uh, other communities in their state to educate folks about climate, about education, to educate them about energy, about uh, sustainability, about resilience, et cetera. And so it's important that we build young people into all of our programs and allow them to lead and to uh, take on these issues and own these issues. And I totally agree with that. One of the things that the, the D.C. office does is facilitate the Environmental Justice Leadership Forum on Climate Change. And it's about 42, 43 organizations across the country from a from as far away as Alaska and as close as, um, as Virginia. And what I see these organizations beginning to do is include young, reach out to the young people because they are the present and the future. And, you know, they are ready to fight. They just need a little direction about, you know, how things have been done in the past and how things should be done now. Well, man, well, Dr. Bullard, Dr. Hollis, 
Thank you all so much. Mustafa, this is our first show. Yes, we sir. did it. We, yes, we're, we've got it. So, man, I want to thank WPFW. I want to thank the Hip Hop Caucus. I want to thank Dr. House again and, and Dr. Bullard and Councilman Keechan. You have listened to the inaugural amazing show of Hip Hop Caucus, Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. And you heard those final great words from Dr. Hollis saying that we can't give up hope. That's right. And we got to keep on pushing. So, listen, I believe, I believe that we will come together, and I believe that we will be free, and I believe that we will make sure that we beat climate change and overcome this process. Thank you all so much. Thank you all for listening to the Hip Hop Caucus Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Thanks for joining us this week on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, a hip-hop caucus platform. Let's keep this important dialogue going. Be a part of the conversation by following us on social media at Think 100 Show and at Hip Hop Caucus. Visit our website at think100.info for blog content, information on upcoming events, or to connect with us. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever podcasts are available so you'll never miss an episode. Rate and review us or simply tell a friend. Climate change impacts all of us. And if we think 100%, we can achieve a 100% sustainable and just world together. Think 100, think 100, think 100, think 100.